Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you stories of recuperation, restoration, and all-around rallying with a show we're calling On the Mend. We'll hear how people with spinal cord injuries are getting back in action by whooshing down the ski slopes. We'll meet prison inmates whose rehabilitation includes a weekly dose of art. And we'll explore the sewing, weaving, darning type of mending and find out how D.C.'s textile museum is gearing up for its big crosstown move. But we're going to kick off today's show where we kicked off last week's, actually. Riding through a bay off of Virginia's eastern shore, a narrow finger of land separating the Chesapeake Bay from the Atlantic Ocean. We're going to be riding through uh, the start a channel that's about 20, 30 feet deep, and then we're going to go up on the flat where the tide's high. It's going to be 8 feet deep for miles. But at low tide, there'll only be like 3 feet of water there. Barry Truitt is a chief conservation scientist with the Nature Conservancy the nonprofit that protects 52% of Virginia's eastern shoreline, including 14 of 23 barrier islands. These dynamic, shifting land masses buffer the mainland from storms, and they provide a unique ecosystem for different seagrasses, more than 250 species of birds, and bunches of shellfish, including oysters. You can't see it, but there's oyster beds all over here, all over here, all over right here. All of these things have been threatened by encroaching development, climate change, and overfishing, which is why various public and private agencies, like the Nature Conservancy's Virginia Coast Reserve, own so much of the barrier islands. Inside the Virginia Coast Reserve's headquarters on the mainland, Barry Truitt shows me a color-coded map of who owns what. The green is what the Conservancy owns. The purple is what the state owns. Uh, This is the federal land. But the Conservancy doesn't just own islands. It also owns parts of the mainland. We bought the islands mainly because they were wild and they had tons of birds nesting on them. Once we bought the islands, we realized the birds were tied into the health of the coastal bays and the food and the fish and all. So we started a program then of buying farms that uh, had a lot of development potential on the seaside edge. And we bought them, put easements on them and resold them and got our money back out of them and limit the amount of houses that could be built on them. Indeed, says Jill Bieri, the Virginia Coast Reserve's director, everything is connected. Take, for instance, eel grass, a flowering plant that spreads out in shallow parts of the bay. So if you were down on the bottom, you know, with a mask and snorkel, you'd look out, and it's really like a forest underwater. So almost every species of finfish spends some part of its life cycle, either from protection or, you know, nursery, coming into spawn or breed. Not only that, but eelgrass helps improve water quality. They're not algae, so they have extensive root rhizome systems. So they actually bind the sediment or the dirt in the bottom of the water. So they make the water around them clear. Eelgrass once thrived in this area, but by the 1930s, much of it had been wiped out by a deadly slime mold coupled with the giant Chesapeake-Potomac hurricane of 1933. As a result, marine animals became homeless and waterfowl went away. But Barry Truitt is happy to report that decades later, the Nature Conservancy teamed up with the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, or VIMS, to reseed. Once we started planting seeds out here, we planted 380 acres now and have almost 5,000 acres growing. Another success story, Truett says, is the oysters. See, by the mid-1990s, overharvesting and disease had pretty much driven oysters to commercial extinction. We had 70-some acres of oyster reefs. We used to lease out to watermen back when the oysters were growing. When they all died, the watermen gave all the leases up, and we made sanctuaries out of them. And in 2002, we started planting oyster shells out here to see if we could create reefs. And 
today. There's more oysters in this system than there is in the whole lower part of the Chesapeake Bay. But sustaining the Barrier Islands ecosystem isn't just about restoring and protecting wildlife. It's about protecting the islands themselves, which, as we've learned, are constantly changing. The beach changes with the tide, uh, with storms. It changes through the seasons. You could go to a barrier early in the week and then go back later in the week, and they look completely different. So the problem, says Chris Hine, who teaches in the Department of Physical Sciences at VIMS, is when something messes with this natural change. Like, for example, climate change. There's broad scientific consensus that climate change that we're seeing today and that we expect to see in the next 5 to 20 to 50 to 100 years is largely driven by humans. Climate change, Heinz says, causes the sea level to rise, and that in turn affects the barrier islands. One of the big questions that I'm interested in is uh, what's the threshold rate at which sea level can rise and a barrier island can remain stable? What happens when we exceed that rate? Does the barrier just get washed away? And we've seen that happen with some barriers in the Louisiana coast. That's in part because of storms, in part because those are some of the highest sea level rise rates in the world. Then, Heinz says, there's another way humans can mess with the barrier islands, by constructing all sorts of jetties and rock walls and whatnot to hold these land masses in place. They take away some of that dynamism and just try to stay this static barrier with this beautiful beach that people can go and sit on and have their houses on and boardwalks lining those beaches. And as the Nature Conservancy's Barry Truitt points out, some of the barrier islands... There's about 20 people that lived on Smith Island one time. ...have been subject to all those things. There was a resort on Cobb Island. The Cobbs were some New Englanders that moved down here. There were probably 20, 30 people lived there. There was 110 people on Hog Island. Shigatig had 500 people. <laughs> uh, now they're wondering about how to keep the parking lot so the tourists can park 50 feet from where they lie on the beach. You know, it's washed away three times in the last four years. That's why Truett is so glad the Conservancy started buying up the islands in the 1960s. When the Conservancy got involved here, and the southern three islands here, Smith, Myrtle, and Shipshoal, were proposed for high-density residential development. And the Conservancy bought those three islands and most of the rest of the coast south from Metompkin Island. Now, Virginia's eastern shore is the longest expanse of coastal wilderness left on the eastern seaboard. And the hope is, it'll stay that way. To learn more about the Nature Conservancy's Virginia Coast Reserve, and to see a map of who owns what on Virginia's barrier islands, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now to mending of another sort, one that has more to do with sewing, darning, and weaving. Since 1925, D.C.'s Textile Museum has been mending and preserving everything from classical Persian carpets to 20th century Bhutanese rain cloaks. And now, the institution is about to move. Lauren Ober has the story. Chelsea Hick is hunched over a table with a hot glue gun in one hand and a rectangle of foam in the other. In front of her are pieces of gray cardboard and a couple of strips of cotton webbing. If you didn't know better, you'd think she was working on some sort of craft project. But for Hick, a technician at the district's textile museum, this isn't arts and crafts time. 
A lot of the material that we have are three-dimensional pieces that need special custom mounts of some form. So here we have a set of blocks to make batik block prints. So we've got some that are some kind of iron. We have some wooden ones as well. So we're just creating a system to basically house them. Hick is lovingly preparing the blocks to be packed up and put in boxes, along with nearly 20,000 other pieces of the museum's collection. To do that, she creates what are basically little carrying cases for each of the items that will occupy box number 618. So these straps will be glued to the bottom of the board so that when they are layered in the box, we can easily remove them and stack them. Oh, they're like little uh, little, handles. little handles. Yep. Over the past year, Hick and her colleagues at the Textile Museum have been preparing the collection for a move across town. From its current location on S Street Northwest, to its new home a couple of miles away in Foggy Bottom. In 2012, the museum entered into a partnership with George Washington University that resulted in a brand new exhibition space being built on campus. That means the entire collection, from Anatolian rugs to Indonesian sarongs to pre-Columbian sashes, has to get boxed up. But this isn't like when you move house and throw a bunch of stuff in boxes and hope for the best. At the Textile Museum, objects are being packed with the greatest care. Some of the methods might seem a little mm, unconventional. We also freeze the collection as part of the move. That's John Wettenhall. He's the director of the Textile Museum as well as the George Washington University Museum. And yes, he did say they freeze the collection. We bring the objects into a refrigerated environment so that we can assure ourselves that no infestations, bugs, or other things might be in the fabric so that when we move everything, they'll be in 100% safe conditions. The move to GW's campus is a big one for the Textile Museum, and not just because of the work involved in packing up. The move symbolizes a new era for the institution. Since 1925, the nation's premier museum for textiles has operated from its Calorama location, somewhat off the beaten tourist path. It's surrounded by embassies, and while it has a loyal visitor base, it's not really in the center of the action. John Wettenhall says the move will change that. What the university opportunity presents is a whole new audience and an academic underpinning that can really support the study of textiles, not just as objects of art, but also as cultural artifacts and as entrees to world cultures and ways to understand it. Neither Wettenhall nor GW President Stephen Knapp knows quite when the museum and the university started talking about a partnership. But here's what they do know. It's tough out there for arts institutions. And a collaboration like this can mean the difference between remaining open and relevant and balkanizing collections and shutting doors. By the end of 2014, the Textile Museum will likely be open in its new space. It will share part of the 46,000-square-foot building with the university's Albert H. Small Washingtoniana collection. The affiliation is part of GW's recent expansion into the arts. Something we were looking to do, which was to have you know, a more powerful presence here, not just in the arts, but arts and culture more broadly. Because you know, we're thinking about the Textile Museum because of its intellectual connection with a number of our departments, which include anthropology, Middle Eastern studies, Africana studies, not just uh, fine arts and art history, which, of course, is one of the connections. 
Stephen Knapp says the university also has a robust museum studies program, which will directly benefit from having access to a museum with a renowned collection right on campus. So to have a a truly world-class example of what you're studying right there in front of you, that level of engagement is, I would think, analogous to the way in which, you know, being in a laboratory with a a cutting-edge scientist is an exciting way to learn a discipline. Last week, GW announced another partnership with the Legacy Art Institution in the district. The Corcoran Gallery of Art is being turned over to both the university and the National Gallery of Art in a sort of three-way collaboration. The works of art will go to the National Gallery, while the historic Beaux-Arts building on 17th Street Northwest, as well as the Corcoran College of Art and Design, will go to GW. At a time when even the president of the United States is taking pot shots at art history majors, it might seem kind of unorthodox for a university to be bolstering arts education. But Stephen Knapp doesn't see it that way. For him, the arts are the cornerstone of creative thinking and innovation. You know, there's a lot of talk about the importance of what are called STEM fields for the competitiveness of the American economy. But what the American economy really depends on is innovation. And more and more, the boundaries between the arts and technology are dissolving. And so we think that with this new presence in the university of a distinguished college of art, if we connect that to the other disciplines, you can start to make the kinds of interdisciplinary connections, cross-cutting relationships that will really foster innovation. So maybe in the future, a GW student studying, say, a traditional Albanian vest at the Textile Museum might see something more than black velvet, striped silk, and coral beads. And who knows where that might lead? I'm Lauren Ober. In a minute, recovering from injury by hitting the ski slopes? You know, my leg popped off a couple times. People were screaming and hollering because they didn't know I was an amputee. They go, oh my God, he lost his leg, you know. That's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Our next story on today's On the Mend show is about recovery, physical recovery from some pretty serious injuries like spinal cord damage or amputation. And when you've suffered an injury like that, relearning how to do even the most basic of things can be a big challenge. But what about the not-so-basic things? Jacob Fenston joined some local Washingtonians on a trip to Pennsylvania, far, far above sea level, to bring us the answer. Brandon Bland was injured a little more than a year ago. I'm able to do a little standing, a little walking with my walker. Like this morning, I brushed my teeth over the sink. I haven't done that. That's, it's been a year and a month since I've been able to stand at a sink in a mirror and brush my teeth. That's a big deal for me. Also a big deal, getting on a ski lift for the first time in his life. Three, three, lift. You're on, thank you. Here we go. Have a great run. It's a bright, sunny morning as the chairlift climbs a few hundred feet to the top of the bunny slope. I I really enjoyed the view. I've never done that before. (laughs) 
We can, we can do that again, can we? Bland usually gets around in a wheelchair, but today he's on a monoski, a bucket seat mounted on a single ski. Mike McGregor is his volunteer instructor. I want to keep your eyes up, looking forward. Okay. All right, if you look down at the snow or like to see what these things are doing, you tend to lose your balance, all right? And if, I need to, if you need me to stop, don't stop. Or... Okay, look over at Tony, easy, easy. Hey, perfect. Now, now look over at Megan. Don't lean, don't lean. There you go. There you go. All right. I did it, though. Uh-oh. <laughs> you can't be scared to fall. At the bottom of the slope, Bland's cousin, Terrence James, is waiting with a camera. Hey, I wouldn't have never thought he would have came out to Pennsylvania to go skiing. I ain't going skiing, but uh, as he's falling down, I'm taking all the pictures and I'm going to make sure Mama... Grandma, everybody else get to see the pitches. This past year hasn't been an easy one for Brandon Bland. He was partially paralyzed below the ribs. Happened on December 3rd in 2012. It was just after midnight at a club on U Street in northwest D.C. As we exited the club, like the guy just started shooting. He was shooting at the target, and I guess I must have been standing near the guy. Wrong place at the wrong time. A bullet struck Bland in the back. Well, at first... You had to get in your mind that you're in a wheelchair first. And then after that, it's, it's a little defeating, for the lack of a better word. He's been working with therapists at the MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital in D.C., regaining movement and confidence. Now I'm starting to like venture out like this. I would have never did this a couple of months ago. Even though I was getting better, I still would have never even came to this trip. I would have made an excuse with myself. Well, like, he always called me, come out, come out, you know, and I never do it. I've been trying to get him to a clubs and go to go to a mall, go, get out of the house. He, ain't want, he don't want to do that. Like, you get in depressed modes, but you got to just pick yourself up. At first, like I said, I was probably my worst enemy, but out now, you got to motivate yourself. At the age of 14, I was electrocuted while playing on top of a train, boxcar, just being a silly kid, and got too close to an overhead power wire. Reggie Showers had both legs amputated below the knee when he was 14. Now he's a registered snowboarding instructor and one of the dozens of volunteers teaching people with disabilities on this recent morning. Showers walks and snowboards on prosthetic legs. Never let the amputation uh, stop me from achieving some of the goals that I wanted to achieve in life. Goals like racing motorcycles. As a career professionally for probably over 20 years. When he first tried snowboarding at a resort in the Pocono Mountains, there was no specialized adaptive program for people like him. He had to figure things out on his own. You know, my leg popped off a couple times. People were screaming and hollering because they didn't know I was an amputee. They go, oh my God, he lost his leg, you know. Keeping your prosthetic leg on is, perhaps no surprise, not that easy. So there's little things that me as an amputee snowboard instructor knows through experience, through trial and error, that uh, I can offer to the, the new snowboarder, the new adaptive snowboarder. On this recent morning, there are more than 50 people with disabilities going up and down the slopes here at Liberty Mountain. These two days of adaptive skiing instruction are put on by the group Baltimore Adaptive Sports and Recreation. My name is Pamela Leonard. I am the executive director of Baltimore Adaptive Recreation in Sports. Leonard is a recreation therapist, and she's put on this skiing event each year for the past 15 years. She says it's not just about skiing. Oh, I think it transcends into everyday life. You're successful here. You feel like, and I don't like we're normal, but you feel just like a person, like everybody else. Back on the slopes, Brandon Bland is still getting the hang of things. Don't focus on the little kids. Look away from the little kids. Look away from the trees. I've seen that red thing. I got nervous. (laughs) 
Ready to go up again? Yeah. Bland's cousin, Terrence James, has been watching the whole time, and he says he's proud. So is Bland. I'm proud of myself. I would never. I was gonna back out to be honest. <laughs> run after run, fall after fall. He doesn't want to quit. I wanted to keep going. Like I knew they had to take a lunch break, and he was probably getting tired of picking me up. <laughs> so, but I'd do it again, of course. I'm Jacob Fenston. We'll leave the mountains behind now and head out on the coast. That's our regular segment from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Today, Brian Russo takes us to the Sussex Correctional Institute, or SCI, a prison in Georgetown, Delaware. For the past decade or so, inmates there have gathered every Friday to draw. Everything from landscapes to portraits to comic book scenes – And as Brian tells us, this weekly art class has given the men a chance to reflect on what they've done and where they're going with their lives. Chase Fehrenbach is probably the youngest inmate in this class, but his artwork is among the most striking. Chase got hooked on heroin at a young age, and the throes of addiction led him to commit armed robbery. He says he's six years into a lengthy sentence. For him, this class is a way to hone his craft because he hopes to make art a full-time career when he gets out. I love the idea of tragedy mixed with love and longing, um, destruction, breeding, creation, tearing something down to build something beautiful or um, building something beautiful over top the ruins of something, you know, past or destroyed. How much, how much was art a part of your life before you came here? I was a huge part. I've been drawing since I was a little kid. Um, started out drawing imaginary planes and with bombs and guns, futuristic style, and then eventually just kind of took on a life of its own and um, started designing tattoos when I was about 13 and uh, kind of spun on and took a life of its own there, but it's really flourished ever since I come to jail. How has your art grown since being in this program? Um, It's grown exponentially. Um, I have always done art on the street, but the time in here alone, away from the class, I utilize extremely well. Um, But what this class has given me is additional mediums that I wouldn't have access to otherwise. Painting, um, watercolor, acrylic, canvases, things that I couldn't necessarily afford and or have access to, period, if I was on the rest of the compound, Um, which is uh, my mediums are usually, as you can tell, black and white um, pen work. But getting into color and canvases and paintings has really broken my mold and... uh, it's just shown me another world of possibilities that I didn't even know that I had it in me. You know, you said when you were a kid that, that, that you would draw and that would be kind of an escape. I mean, how much of, of art being created in prison is escapism for you, or is it really a quest to create? It's both. I do it naturally just because it's always been a coping mechanism, even before I knew what a coping mechanism was. Um, It took me away from the world and troubles at home, and it's only amplified that ability in here. It's been my saving grace. Um, It's been an escape for me pretty much every day. Every day in here is a struggle to deal with the issues and the people and the places and having no control. This is the one place I can turn to where I have absolute, complete control to do and come up with whatever my will, you know, 
desires um, and having that ability and having talent and then having people appreciate it on a grander scale sure. makes it um, even all that more um, special to me. Now, of course, you know, as you look forward and, and to whenever your sentence ends and when you go back into society, I mean, do you think that this will help you ramp into, you know, maybe taking art on as a career? I mean, do you think that that could be a possibility for your future? Absolutely. Um, I'm already in the works right now. I had a lady contact me. Um, I have a website, chasefarenbach.com, as well as a um, MySpace or Facebook account. Um, and people contact me through there sporadically for um, doing commission works for tattoos, um, paintings. Um, I have the stuff in the gallery right now in Millsboro. I'm in the works with um, putting stuff in a gallery in California, as well as a lady um, approached me about six months ago with a children's book idea. Wow. And I'm in the works with illustrating a children's book with her. So it, it sounds like even though you're in here, it sounds like your career... Is, is moving along. Um, how much do you attribute to the, just being in this class? Um, a lot. I mean, my career artistically <laughs> has grown more in here than it ever was on the street. Um, on the street, it was more of a novelty, something to do to relieve stress and to kill time in here. It's been a consuming endeavor that's been nothing but gratification after gratification on a scale that I didn't even ever imagine it would be on. That was inmate and artist Chase Fahrenbach talking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Foggy Bottom in northwest D.C. and Glen Arden, Maryland. I'm Lawrence Winston. I'm 70 years old. I'm living in Glen Arden, Maryland. Glen Arden, Maryland is located in uh, Landover, Prince George's County. Uh, gets about maybe 5, 10 miles outside of uh, D.C. in the suburbs. This house was built in 1950. My father lived in that um, Detroit Park area, and he decided that he was trying to find a place for him to, a nice, safe place for him to uh, raise his family. So he was uh, checking with uh, the Freedmen's Bureau at the time in uh, D.C. Uh, so my father decided to purchase land and, and build, and we're at that location right now. There's still a few of us who are uh, the pioneering families of Glen Arden. One of the things that we, I guess, uh, cherished is the fact that uh, we had a family-friendly relationship one to the other, and we continue to have that kind of relationship. I'm proud of um, living in Glen Arden and living in the house that my father built, the history and the heritage of uh, Glen Arden and all that we stand for. Dixie Woodard, and I am 70 years old, young that is, and we are in Foggy Bottom. It's a block from the Foggy Bottom Metro, just about a block from the Watergate, and a couple of blocks from the Kennedy Center. I moved here in 2000. I was coming from overseas. I'd been overseas 21 years. Being a retired professor, I found my neighbors to be retired professors as well. So it was a mixture of retired professors and students 
and some young professional, young people. It is hard to believe that this little neighborhood is in the middle of Washington, D.C. The streets have these beautiful trees, and people take pride in their yard. People sit on their steps, they sit in their yards. So you know people up and down all the blocks. If I really needed something, I've got people I could call anytime, night or day. After all these years of living here, we are so lucky that we found this place. And I love Foggy Bottom. I love Washington, D.C. We heard from Dixie Woodard in Foggy Bottom and Lawrence Winston in Glen Arden. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. break, two brothers confront the prospect of blindness by hitting the road. This may be the only chance I get to experience this, so why not go all out? It's coming up next on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we're calling today's show On the Men, with stories about restoring, reviving, and bouncing back. Now, you may recall that back in December 2011, we brought you a story about this guy. I remember obviously feeling that the world was ending. When I talk about it with people, I I say to them, that was the point that my childhood ended. I definitely began to look at the world in a new way. Back then, when we were chatting with D.C.-based actor, improvisationist, and comedian Justin Purvis, he was talking quite literally As a teenager, he was diagnosed with choroideremia. That's a rare genetic disease that causes progressive loss of vision. Justin was down to about 15% vision when we met, able to see directly in front of him, but not much in the periphery. When people ask me about it, I say it's donut vision or bagel vision if you want to be healthy, I guess. Since that story aired, Justin has been quite the busy man. He's performed in a bunch of plays around town, including his own one-man show, Hysterical Blindness. And with his older brother, Todd, who also has choroideremia, Justin took a 35-day road trip to see America, potentially for the last time. As the brothers traveled, a film crew tagged along, documenting the adventure. They released Driving Blind on Vimeo earlier this year. All right, ready? The grand adventure. Yeah. It's great to get started on. The stress of prepping for it, getting to this point. I'm so much happier just being, like, officially being on the road. I figure at the end of this, we'll either be really close or we'll never talk to each other very much. This week, I met up with Justin, who now has 14% vision. And I asked how much he and his brother planned their 13,000-mile itinerary. The one thing I've learned, and I think I learned this from my mother, is you plan for everything, and then that allows you to be ready for the unexpected. So we we had everything planned out. I had reached out through family and reached out through the Choroideremia Research Foundation to just be like, we're planning this trip. If there's anybody near any of these places, please let us know because we would love to come stay with you or interview you for the film. But as I would come to find out, the director had surprises for us along the way, which involved us taking a day to do these things. All of them are in the film. These Because they were great. Like... Um, wait, wait, uh, let me guess. Can I guess? Sure. The sensory deprivation tank. Yes. That was that was a surreal experience. 
And I talked a little bit about it beforehand with uh, Steve, who was the guy who was driving us around Portland that day, about how I'm an internal person. I'm more internal than external. And so my worry was getting into a place where I'm completely internal, It's I'm just going to turn on myself. But I found it to be kind of mind-expanding. It's really interesting hearing you talk about it this way because your brother in the film seems to have been pretty freaked out by the whole thing and he related it to his vision loss and how this was actually he was blind it it brought me to this kind of place where it's just lonely and scary to to lose your vision and it just kind of all made me think i don't want to go blind you know i've had a lot more time to deal with the vision loss because i was diagnosed when i was 14 and my brother was diagnosed when he was 37 he wasn't diagnosed until a couple years before we did the road trip. A very interesting device that um, the film uses is people you meet along the way are asked to answer the question, if you were going blind, what is the last thing you would want to see? And we hear a whole bunch of different answers. Moment later, your eyesight was ending. What what, what do you want, be, you want to be gazing at? Moment of my dream soul for what it really means. The last thing I want to see would be my wife's face. Like memorize their faces? The faces of my children. The faces of my grandkids. The smile of the smile of the Visit all my friends. The husband of my kids. I'm curious, which, if any, especially resonated with you? I think for me, especially at this point in my life, as I'm starting to shift over towards a more family-related want, the talk of seeing your, your children or seeing your grandchildren one last time really spoke to me because I don't have any kids yet. I want children. And uh, although the doctors say that my, my vision loss has plateaued at this point, the majority of people affected by choroideremia have the most vision loss occur in their 40s. And I'm almost 38 now. And so a real possibility exists that it's plateaued now, but come my 40s, I could lose the rest of it. And uh, wanting to have the visual memory and, and actual memory of my child would be something that I would want to see. You're talking about sort of the path that your vision is taking. The man that your brother meets up with in Louisiana, he has choroideremia. He's in his 50s. He's walking with a, a stick. And he says that he is confident that neither you nor your brother will go blind, that a cure, that treatment, you know, something will be found. It's hard to relay what it was like for 40 years to have no hope. And now I'm 54, and I have every confidence that you and your brother aren't going to go blind. In the news lately of the last few months in the United Kingdom, they did a clinical trial for people affected by choroideremia. And six of the people... It either stopped the progression or they gained the, some of their vision back. So Artman, who was the, the guy that we knew, he was the uh, former president of the Corridoremia Research Foundation. I think he's right. They have done the clinical trials. They are very excited about these uh, results. They're trying to get the clinical trials started here in uh, the States and in Canada. It's just a time-consuming process and financially-consuming process, which is why money made from the sales of the movie will go to the Quarter Research Foundation and to help with finding a cure. Something 
else that we see throughout the film is the use of quotations. Um, sort of the movie's almost divided into sections, chapters, passages, punctuated by, by quotations by everyone from Kurt Cobain to Bob Dylan to the quote that I want to talk about, Henry David Thoreau. The quotation is, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. Uh, I think quotes like that are great because if you're in a place that you don't want to be mentally, it can help you to take that first step out. You know, when I was diagnosed with choroideremia at 14, I was told I'll be blind by the time I was 20. And then as I was re-diagnosed a few more times and then told all likelihood it will be 40 that you'll lose your vision. It helped me to release some of the anger and stuff that I had from a, as a kid because I'm now I'm seeing, you know, even though I know I'm still going blind, I got more time. So I know to appreciate it. Well, Justin Purvis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. You can see some pretty amazing images from Driving Blind and watch a full scene from the film on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you want to see Justin Purvis in person, he'll be in Faction of Fools production of Pinocchio opening March 8th. We have information about that on metroconnection.org, too. All right, we'll turn away from this week's theme for a spell and step inside a local watering hole with our monthly segment, DC Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. This time around, Jared Walker takes us to a bar and restaurant where bartenders are generous with their pores... And love is often in the air. It's happy hour at Stan's Restaurant, an eatery and bar a block north of McPherson Square in downtown Washington. People are starting to trickle in from the surrounding office buildings, but I beat most of them there and have staked out some prime real estate at the already crowded bar. That's where I meet Frances, a Louisiana native who didn't want us to use her last name. She's been frequenting this dive for more than a decade. Were there bars like this back home? Every other bar in New Orleans, yeah. I mean, there are lots and lots of dive bars in New Orleans. Were you happy to find a place like this? Yes, I was very much so. Um, I didn't think there was any place like this, quite frankly. The first couple of years I was here, or first few years I was here, I didn't know it existed. That's not surprising. Stan's is a basement bar, and you'd likely be forgiven if you walked past the entrance without noticing it. But what Stan's lacks in location, it more than makes up for in ambiance. Oh, it's a, it's a very dark bar, uh, and at night it gets even darker. <laughs> yeah, we like that, though, because we look so good in the, in the candlelight. Everybody thinks you're beautiful till you walk outside. This restaurant and bar was founded more than three decades ago by its namesake, Stan Gimble. But it's been the lifelong love of current owner, Kathy Schwass. She actually worked for Stan long before she was the boss. I waited tables. I was a bartender here for at least 20 years. And then he was going to close down in the early 90s. And so then I bought it. I didn't want to look for another job. So I said, let me go for it. And, you know, it was like a dream come true. 
always wanted a bar, and I always, you know, it was just in my heart. And I hope, if anything happens to me, that someone else will come along and at least keep the name going and, and the tradition. What is the tradition here? The large drinks and good food and good conversation and wonderful people. And can you tell me about the large drinks? Every time I mention this place to someone, they, they say that's the place with the big drinks. I pour like three to four ounces of liquor and put the juice on the side. And by the juice, you mean like a, a chaser? or Yeah, a chaser. Yeah, then you mix it yourself, and so you get your own taste, you know, on how you like your drink. I, I've never seen that anywhere else. Where'd you get that idea from? Well, Stan got that idea. That's the way he always did it, and I... I tried to change it, but it didn't work. They weren't going for that. According to bar regular Francis, those healthy pours have consequences. You have to be careful because you have to go back up the steps to the, to the, to the street. So you have to keep that in mind. That's, that's not so easy if you've had more than one or two. That's a very important point. When you're in a basement bar, you have to have an escape plan. Yes, there has to be an escape plan, and um, one has to remember that. And many of the patrons at Stan's know that escape plan by heart. Joaquin Guevara has been serving the crowd here since 1987. I would say 98.5% regular customer, which you can see him almost every night. Those regulars help create an interesting and diverse atmosphere. It's a bar where politics and sports and whatever's going on in the world is discussed by everybody, and it's kind of an interesting microcosm of the world because you've got Democrats and Republicans, black and white, young and old, and it's just a good mix of folks to have conversations with. And you're also like in the shadow of the White House. Yeah, pretty much, yeah, and so anybody could come in and have. Because of that location, bar regular John Daniels says stands attracts a surprisingly international crowd. I've seen people from Russia, New Zealand, France, uh, Georgia. John even met the love of his life in the bar. I met my wife here at Stan's Restaurant, and we've been married ever since 1999, and we're still married today, and that was the best day of my life. According to bartender Kelly Crydell, that's not uncommon. She estimates that about 30 couples have met here. I have served people that are throwing a birthday party for their parents, grown people, and they said their parents met at Stan's. John Daniels says there's no single reason why so many regulars have fallen in love throughout the years. The bar just sets the stage. This is the place to come where you want to relax, have a good libation, and good food. The mood lighting probably doesn't hurt either. I'm Jared Walker. Do you have a favorite dive bar we should visit? Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. Before we say goodbye today, let's take our monthly look at the literary life of the D.C. region. It's bookend. This week, Jonathan Wilson sat down with Natwar Gandhi. You may know him as the long-serving chief financial officer of the District of Columbia. But his first love wasn't crunching numbers. It was composing words. He's published several books of poetry in his native language of Gujarati. Jonathan met him downtown at the Metropolitan Club on H Street Northwest. Going back to your formative years, how early were you interested in the world of finance? And how early were you interested in the world of poetry, which is what we're here to talk about? Poetry uh, longer than finance. Uh, Indeed, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to major in literature. 
fortunately, uh, one of our relatives educated me and told me that if you really want to get a job, uh, going to get married, have children, a roof over your head, poetry is not the way to go, uh, you should go into accounting. And uh, so I started uh, learning accounting and majored in accounting uh, in my college. Uh, but nevertheless, I uh, kept on uh, reading and writing poetry. Poetry is a great passion for me and uh, stayed with me uh, ever since. So about age 60, I said, do I ever want to be a published poet or not? And so basically, since I had accomplished a great deal of my professional career as an accountant, as a chief financial officer, uh, I decided to concentrate on poetry. When you were growing up, were you considered odd because you were so interested in poetry? Or was it common amongst your friends and, uh, and relatives growing up? No, odd to this day. <laughs> because usually people who major and, and uh, devote all their lives to accounting and finance do not generally think in terms of poetry. But to me, uh, poetry is where my heart is. Accounting is what I do uh, to go through the day. Uh, and uh, uh, I think, you know, basically since I was doing it on the side, and, and it's a harmless profession, so to say, uh, and it at the same time is very enriching. Uh, people often say, you know, I have or had uh, one of the most stressful jobs in Washington. Uh, and so how do I relieve my stress? Well, I relieve my stress by reading and writing poetry. And uh, that has been an enormous pleasure of mine, a passion of mine, and uh, enjoyed doing it. Over the years working for the city, dealing with that stress, as you say, I'm wondering how other than just stress relief, your poetry maybe affected how you looked at your job and vice versa. Do you think that any of your job bled into your poetry as you were writing it? Absolutely. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you cannot really distinguish and separate uh, life into several uh, blocks. You know, it's all integrated into one. And uh, writing my uh, poetry uh, has reflected what I go through the day. And, uh, you know, one of my poem, uh, poems uh, deals with uh, that one should not take oneself very seriously. Uh, and, uh, you know, that reminds you of Shelley's poem, uh, sonnet, Ozymandias, and uh, it is on the same line of thought. At the same time, I have an office on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. I had an office on Pennsylvania Avenue. So my latest volume is called the Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, where uh, it shows my disillusionment uh, with American politics, uh, particularly its foreign policy, and uh, later poems that I have written reflect that. So I basically uh, do my accounting and my finance and poetry in, in one fell swoop. Uh, I, it's difficult to really segregate all that. I'm also wondering in terms of your... Uh style of working and the way that you view poetry with your background in math and numbers, do you have at all a mathematical or systematic approach to writing? Or is it, do you really try to get away from that when you're writing? Well, I think uh, the form of poetry that I have selected uh, reflects my emphasis and my inclination towards discipline, 
discipline of accounting, discipline of finance. So I write uh, only in meters, Sanskrit meters, and these meters are highly precise form of expression. There are only so many letters in a, a line, and then again in a similar pattern. Uh, uh, the Sanskrit, uh, the ancient Indian language, has a very detailed, developed uh, ways of uh, forming poetry. And I also write sonnets. Sonnets, uh, as you know, are 14 lines. Uh, it has specific rhythm and rhyme. People who have known me as a very disciplined uh, person devoting most of the time uh, in the day towards accounting the numbers uh, also could see as to why I have selected sonnets and meters as opposed to writing uh, in blank words. So, for example, uh, I could never write uh, in the way, say, Walt Whitman had written. Of course, there is no attempt on my part to compare myself to that great poet, and he's one of my great favorites. But nevertheless, he would write free-flowing, goes on and on and on. Uh, I cannot do that. I have to have a message done in 14 lines and and, and, and in a particular pattern. That was DC's former CFO and published poet, Natwar Gandhi, talking with Jonathan Wilson. You can hear Gandhi reciting some of his poetry and translating it on metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Brian Russo, Lauren Ober, and Jared Walker. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on metroconnection.org. You can also hear the entire show on our website. Just click the This Week on Metro Connection link. And you can subscribe to our podcast there. Or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week for a show we're calling Against the Odds. We'll hear about a Virginia woman's miraculous recovery from a suicide attempt and find out how she's using her experience to help others. And we'll get the latest on how Maryland's growing number of casinos is affecting gambling addicts. Plus, we'll meet one of America's first female Orthodox Jewish clergy members. I just kind of assumed that I would not pursue a career in Orthodox Jewish life because I just didn't see women really in those positions. And so I think, you know, just subconsciously, I just assumed that was not for me. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WANU 88.5 News.